Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of realsimple.com. How do you find true love? And once you find it, how do you make it last? These are questions that people have been wrestling with for eons. And yet, while many of us have a romantic notion of finding the one, if we follow our heart and search long and hard enough, current research actually suggests that using data might be a better way to achieve long-term relationship satisfaction. Joining me today to talk about this is Tai Tashiro, author of The Science of Happily Ever After, What Really Matters in the Quest of Enduring Love. Also joining us is regular contributor to The Labor of Love, Lori Gottlieb. Lori is an L.A.-based psychotherapist and author of Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Goodenough. Hi, Lori, and hi, Ty. Hi, Lori. So, Ty, your book is based on the premise that good relationships come from choosing good partners. You also talk about how when we're looking for partners, we often have a list of traits that we're looking for and that we have way too many. Why is that a problem? Well, you know, I, I discovered this when I was teaching a course at the University of Maryland, and it was on romantic relationships and the psychology of that. And we'd do an exercise where I'd ask students, what do you want in your ideal partner? And they would list probably 17, 18 different traits or characteristics that they'd like to have in their ideal partner, which is, which is great. But it becomes a problem because once you start ruling out people based on certain characteristics, you start whittling down the pool of people available pretty quickly. So I can give you an example. Let's say somebody wants a man who's tall, and let's say that's six foot tall in their mind. That would mean that 80% of their potential options would be ruled out right away just based on height. So if you make like one or two or three different traits that you want in a partner, you pretty quickly end up with just a few people left out of a couple hundred. So what are we supposed to guide our decisions with then? Are we only supposed to pick one trait? Are we supposed to consider traits that aren't that hard to attain, like maybe not very tall, not very good looking? How are we supposed to go about making those decisions? Well, you know, it's it's tough to try to think about compromising when it comes to your lifelong romantic partner. So it's okay to have a lot of wishes. I think it's just that we don't always take the time to prioritize those wishes as far as what would be the top things that we absolutely need to be happy with somebody in the long term versus what are the things that would just be nice to have or kind of luxuries. When we're thinking about those traits, what traits are the ones that we know through research correspond to more satisfaction in a relationship? (laughs) There's two parts to that answer. The the first one is that the traits that we prioritize aren't the ones that make us happy. (laughs) And then the second part is there's better ones that we could choose on. So What they find in studies where they actually watch what people do, so like in online dating scenarios or um, speed dating scenarios where we can actually monitor who people choose out of a pool of people, what researchers find is that men oftentimes prioritize physical attractiveness first as the first thing they want in a partner, and women will prioritize socioeconomic status first and then look second. And that could be okay if being with a really good-looking partner made you happy for decades on end. But, of course, the research shows that there's very little gain or return on investment from getting a partner who's good-looking. So people who have a good-looking partner are no more happy than people who have somebody who's less attractive. Same thing goes for money. Money can be stressful, certainly on a couple, up to a certain point. But once you get up to middle-income levels, there's really no difference between having a partner who, say, 
make $70,000 a year versus $700,000 a year when it comes to your long-term stability and marital happiness. Well, that's really surprising. There's even in that there that range, it doesn't really make a difference. Seventy to seven hundred thousand. That's right, and it dovetails nicely with some of the research that happiness researchers have done, and they find a cut point of about seventy-five thousand dollars, where there's just a point of diminishing return past there, where you can get your basic needs met and not have to worry too much on a day-to-day basis about money, and past that, then it doesn't really seem to matter. So. With money or socioeconomic status, you want to get a situation that's not going to be too stressful. And then with looks, of course, it's nice to have a good-looking partner. Kissing your partner shouldn't be like eating your veggies, but uh, you don't want to overinvest in too much in the physical attractiveness of a partner. Don't you think that this should be like a public service announcement or something <laughs> that everyone should know these two, this two, these two data points? Because I think that for both genders, it seems that those would be among the top traits that people are looking for. It, it, it would be great if someone could send out a public service <laughs> announcement about that because uh, <laughs> it leads to a good amount of trouble. You know, I, I think that people know that. Uh, they, their common sense and their wisdom tells them that at some level. It's just that when we're in the, in the thick of it and we're really feeling we're attracted to somebody and we're really excited about things, it's not an optimal psychological state to use our reason and, and best judgment. Lori, I want to hear what you think about what Ty just said and how that dovetails with your own views and research about finding long-term happiness. Right. Well, he's absolutely right. In Marry Him, I looked at similar questions that he's looking at, which is, you know, what makes for happy, lasting marriages? And the things that we look for when we're dating don't necessarily correlate with the things that are going to make us happy for the long term in marriages. And in fact, many of the things that we're looking for correlate in a negative way. So we we look for traits in a partner that won't be helpful for us if what we're looking for is the long-term happiness in the relationship. And what are some examples of that? I think what, you know, kind of what Ty was talking about with the list. Um, In Marry Him, I start off with this list. You know, I think most of us don't think we have a list, first of all. I think we think, oh, you know, when I meet someone, I just know. I just know when I feel how I feel about this person. But in reality, we do have very specific ideas about the kind of person that we think we're going to be with. And even at the beginning of of marrying him, somebody who was married said to me, you know, I'm I'm sure you have a list. And I said, I'm sure I don't. And and she said, well, just, just write down what you're looking for. And within about five minutes, I came up with like 70 things, you know, and they were, and they were really, really um, incompatible types of things, like he has to be really charming, but not flirtatious with other women, or he has to, <laughs> he has to like sports, but, watch, but, not, but not, you know, not be a sports fanatic, or he has to be athletic, but not watch sports all the time. You know, these really crazy things. Right. I had no idea I was walking around with. And I, I think that what happens is that we start to, as Ty was saying, rule people out very early on before even, you know, even agreeing to talk to them for half an hour over coffee. Um, mm-hmm. We won't even do that because we think, oh, well, that, that person's not going to be right for me. And, and the point is that you, you don't know who you're going to fall in love with until you meet that person. And if you're ruling out all these people and not meeting them, and you're meeting the wrong kinds of people, you're going to have a really, a really hard time. 
I think it's also just easier, you know, the the things that we think we want, like the money and the good looks, are the things that are very easily known to you right from the start, right? You can tell right away whether you feel an attraction. You can tell right away whether this person is economically sound or not. And these other qualities that you're mentioning, Lori, like, you know, kindness, um, curiosity, these things that are less, you know, maybe less, they're not easily seen all the time or that it takes a while to get to know someone. So maybe you need to give it more time as well. Well, right. And I think that a lot of people worry about that. They feel like, well, if I don't know after the first date, if I don't feel any excitement or I don't know that after two dates or three dates, then I better move on. And when there's actually a study in Maryham, um, a researcher looked at people at, this isn't memories. This wasn't, this wasn't a study of memories of people who then said, oh, this is what I felt at the time. They looked at people in real time, and they looked at people when they went on a first date, and then they looked at them throughout the courtship, and they looked at them for 20 years. And, you know, some of these people got married, some of these people stayed married, some of these people got married and got divorced. But when they would ask people, you know, what did you think on your first date, or what did you think in the first three months? a lot of people change their stories. So if they were happy where they were in their, in their relationship or their marriage, they said, oh, I knew right away that I really liked him or I really liked her. But at the time, they actually said something different. Like, I don't really know. I don't know if I want to go out again or I don't really feel anything. And, and the same thing happened in the other direction where people who were unhappy with their partner said, yeah, I knew from the beginning that I wasn't really that into it. And <laughs> at the time, they were really into it. So I think that we, we, in our culture, tell these stories that, you know, love has to look a certain way, that you're going to know when you meet the person and you're going to be excited very early on. And in reality, many, many, but probably the majority of, of happily married people, it took them a little time before they had that sort of aha moment or, or even the slow burn of really realizing, oh, I really am falling in love with this person. And if People have the opposite experience, Ty, if they feel a lot of attraction and lust and excitement at the beginning, and they make long-term decisions based on those feelings. Is it more likely that their relationship is going to peter out? Is that something that people should be on the lookout for? You know, I I think there is, and there's another nice longitudinal study where they caught people before they got married, and then they tracked them for the next 14 years uh, after the date of marriage to see what happened. And interestingly enough, the people who are what you're describing, they were just head over heels, and that passionate love, that kind of high-charged love was the highest in them. They actually were the majority of people who fell into the early divorcing group, who divorced within two years of marrying each other. So they kind of burned bright and then faded out really quickly. You know, like I said earlier, it's tough to make good decisions when you're in that kind of psychological state where your mind's racing and your heart's thumping and butterflies in the stomach. How do people, armed with this knowledge, let's say there's someone listening to this podcast who is out, you know, actively dating right now and trying to make sense of all this information we're giving them, how do you know when you're making a smart choice as opposed to compromising or settling? How, do you, how does someone take into consideration all the things that we're talking about, but not, you know, just settle? I think that, you know, one of the things that I do in my therapy practice is I do premarital counseling. And the people who come in are not coming in because they're in trouble. They're coming in because they want a forum to 
talk about a lot of the things that don't sound so romantic when you're about to get married. And those things are areas that a lot of people shockingly don't talk about before they're getting married, even though they're going to greatly impact some of their choices when they get married. So things like money, things like children, whether or not they want to have them, and if so, how many they want to have, and if so, who's going to be taking care of them, work, sex. All of, these, all of these things are going to impact them on a daily basis in their marriages, but a lot of people think, well, you know, we, we get along so well and we love each other so much, and, and of course, whatever comes our way, we'll be able to work out. But if you really have very different ideas or values or life goals and you go into your marriage that way, you're going to have a lot of conflict. And so it's better to talk about them now and really get to know these aspects of your partner before you get married to make sure that you guys really do have similar ideas about, you know, how you want your lives to go. That seems like it should be a guarantee, you know, everybody getting married should have to do that. It seems like Like that would save a lot of, right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So I read in my research for this podcast that 88% of adults believe in soulmates. That right there seems like that's going to that's setting a lot of people up for trouble if we listen to kind of the research that you both are citing. That's a great figure, and most people do believe in soulmates, and it actually dates back to the Romantic era when music and all kinds of arts started to become more emotional and have this ideal of some sort of uh, emotional high was actually the moral thing to strive for. And around that same time, our relationships changed. And we wanted our marriages suddenly to be these high, highly emotional, highly passionate kinds of things. And it shifted from love being a nice thing that could be a byproduct of marriage to romantic love being something that was morally imperative if you were going to marry somebody in the first place. And you could imagine that if a friend said that they were going to marry somebody they didn't love, there would probably be a bit of uproar about that among their friends, saying, are you sure this is a good idea? So... Uh, Along with that soulmate idea came this notion that there's a one and only, and there's that Disney ideal that they'll magically appear through some glitter and dust and uh, sweep you (laughs) off your feet and you'll live happily ever after. There's never an appendix to these movies showing what it would take to make that work in the long run. And and I think the, the other issue with the soulmate is that it implies that there's only one person that you could be happy with. And so the expectations that we place upon these people that we think are our soulmates are just almost impossible for any human being to to satisfy all of the time or even most of the time. You know, they have to be our best friend. They have to rock our world in bed. They have to be our career counselor. They have to be, you know, the, the person who entertains us. And we don't look at it that way. We think, oh, of course, I don't think that, right? But, but most of us, uh, on, to some degree, do. We have these expectations that our partner is going to, to be all of these things to us, and it's, it's really setting both people up in the marriage for disappointment because nobody can really do that to the degree that the soulmate fantasy implies. I'm just curious, as you're both very data-driven people and you've studied this from an empirical point of view, have you, do you believe in soulmates or have you seen couples in your lifetime that you would say or describe as soulmates? I think there are many, many very, very well-matched and very much in love couples. You know, I'm not really too concerned about the term soulmate. I think it's more about how they view each other, how they value each other, 
how much enjoyment they get from each other, how resilient they are in the face of, you know, the times when life doesn't treat everybody well. Those are the couples who have really good marriages. And whether or not you use the term soulmate or not, I think those are the kinds of marriages that most of us would aspire to. You could also call it luck, right? That you got lucky (laughs) and you met somebody who's really fantastic, but... Um, there's this whole other line of psychological research that shows that people make their own luck. And Lori makes some great points about that your attitude and your mindset about what you expect, and I think, therefore, what you appreciate about your partner goes a long ways toward viewing somebody as just uh, somebody I met who's serviceable for now as my partner or somebody who I'm really grateful for who meets a lot of criteria that some of these things I didn't even expect to get in a partner. And that's really, I think, what people want when they think about a soulmate ideal. Ty, you write a lot about really taking time to recognize red flags at the beginning of a relationship, and you Mm -hmm. counsel people to not, even in the throes of falling in love, it's really important to take a good look at the things that annoy you about your partner or concern you. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important? Sure. You know, when when people break up or after the relationship is over, they always say, well, I saw that from the start, whatever it was that ended up being the negative thing in a relationship that led to its demise. And so I think a lot of times we know on some level, even if it's subconscious, that there's concerning things about a partner. And you can, in premarital therapy, for example, that can be a good environment to talk about some of those things. But for most people, they actually never take those things head on. And so the red flags are there from the start, whether somebody's emotionally unstable or uh, unreliable, has a relationship history that would suggest that the chances of this relationship with you working out well are probably pretty low. People oftentimes see these things. It's just that we don't want to admit to ourselves that they're there because we're so driven by the good things in a relationship, by the good feelings it gives us and the the excitement and the, the hope we have that this could turn out to be something that we've really been wishing for for a long time in our lives. So, you know, the red flags, I think people have a good intuitive sense about that. They just need to be willing to be honest about that with themselves. One of the things we recommend is that they get their opinion of their friends or their family, which sounds like a really unappealing idea to a lot of people. It really does. <laughs> it really does. Um, you know, and maybe, maybe they all come back and they say, hey, this is, a, this is a really great person. We think you're great together. And that agreement or that consensus can be very informative. But, of course, what we don't want to have happen is that they come back and they say, this person's a real jerk, and you should get out of this as soon as possible, when that's really not what you feel like doing at the time. Maybe a better way or more easier way to do that would be for people who are entering into long-term relationships to ask their friends to sort of say back to them, what are the things that I've complained to you about, about this person? What are the things that I keep bringing up that seem to be bothering me? And then maybe that's an easier way for the other person to reveal what they think the problems might be. I think that's a great idea. And um, I'm pretty sure most people would find that there's agreement (laughs) oftentimes across friends. And that can be be great to know. And this is one of the findings that college students hate to hear. But uh, there's been a couple studies that have looked at whether the people in the relationship are best at predicting their long-term satisfaction Uh stability or if their friends and family are better at predicting the couple's long-term satisfaction and stability. And, uh, of course, they find that your friends and family do a better job than you do 
because they have got their wits about them uh, on the outside <laughs> of the relationship. So it's really a valuable source of information. It it's really can be tough uh, feedback to take. I really like your suggestion about taking what you've already told them and then looking for consistency across that information. Ty, you say that something that you've defined as agreeableness was the trait that was associated with the greatest satisfaction. And I couldn't help but think when I read agreeableness that that is probably the least sexy term I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'm wondering why why is it so important and how how does a couple kind of cultivate it or find or how does one find someone who has that trait? It, it is not sexy at all, <laughs> in fact. And <laughs> If you were to introduce your partner to a new group of friends or to a group of friends you have, and you asked, so, so what did you think? And they said, oh, you know, he's nice or, or she's nice. You'd almost feel insulted <laughs> that, yeah. that, was their, that that was their feedback. But in fact, getting someone who's kind or nice, what psychologists call agreeable, is a really strong predictor of whether they'll be empathic, uh, whether they'll be accurate in their empathy and understanding what your position is and what your feelings are, and if they'll be motivated to try to give and help in a way that's not concerned with, is every little thing that I do going to be equal in this relationship? Highly agreeable people just give and are kind with no, no strings attached, and that's exactly the kind of partner that you want to be with. It doesn't mean that things can't be fair and equitable, but that's the kind of mindset that really helps couples thrive. I wanted to just end with talking about online dating and dating apps and how they play into this idea that data can really help us when we're looking for long-term love. On the one hand, those apps are really, really geared towards judging someone by the way they look. And yet, on the other hand, you can make all kinds of decisions about who you're going to see or who's going to see your profile based on the things that are important to you. So I'm wondering from both of you if you think that they have been a boon for love and long-term romance, if you think there's problems with it, or does the data actually help us in those situations? Well, in, in Marry Him, I actually have a chapter on online dating. And um, what I found so interesting, and I didn't expect at all, was that the, the traits that, that there was a study done where they asked people to pick the traits that they wanted in a partner. And they kind of did an online dating simulation with this. And they found that when they, and they, then they had them meet people. And they didn't tell them who were the people who met these criteria and who were the people who didn't. They just said, come meet these people. And the people that they actually picked in a real live environment versus the people that they would pick in an online simulated environment were very different. So people said they wanted one thing, but when they met people in person, they actually liked different people. They liked people who were not the people that they were selecting for online. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that it's really hard to break down and quantify what it is that you're looking for without having met the person. So I think online dating has some, some you know, great advantages, which is that you, you have access to a lot of different people to meet. Some of the disadvantages that people get caught up in are sometimes we screen out people that we might actually like and screen in people that we won't. And the other problem is just the, the choice that it gives us, that we have this idea that, well, I'll go out on this date, and if I don't like that person, there's another million people, you know, on this app or on this site, and I can just choose another person. And 
as a result, we don't take the time to get to know anybody because we think, ah, that person didn't, like, knock my socks off, so they were fine, but they didn't knock my socks off, so I'm just going to go back online or go back to my app. And it's really hard to get to know somebody and to even get into any kind of relationship if you're juggling multiple people at once. Well, I think Lori brings up a, a great point about this double-edged sword, if I understand this correctly, where it, online dating is great because it grows the pool of potential partners, which is, which is a good thing. But then on the other hand, you have all these potential partners. <laughs> so um, <laughs> one of the key variables in whether or not people commit is their perceived, the jargony term we use is attractive alternative options, which is basically other people you could date. And when attractive alternative options are high or there's a lot of other people you could date, the chances of commitment are lower. And so you have a lot of people just going through a seemingly endless series of dates, knowing that they can always find somebody else to go on a date with. And online dating is not necessarily, doesn't encourage our best behavior all the time. And OkCupid has done some great studies. And one of the ones I love that they did is they took down the profile pictures for a day. And what they found was that people actually had longer conversations when they took down the pictures. And the people who end up, ended up going on dates with each other when these profile pictures were taken down actually had better dates with one another and more, more satisfying dates once you remove the physical attractiveness from that initial part of the meeting. So, you know, some of these things like the physical attractiveness and where somebody went to school and all these other things that don't have a huge impact on whether you're really going to enjoy this person are put front and center sometimes with online dating. I think that's oddly comforting, actually. Yeah, and I think, you know, I always tell people just just go within reason and just meet somebody. Meet somebody face-to-face and see what you actually think. And, you know, don't set all these extravagant criteria that are impossible for anybody to meet. If somebody seems like they're a reasonably nice person, go meet them for a coffee. You never know what's going to come out, what traits and characteristics will manifest once you're face-to-face with somebody. I think that's a good ending point with you never know. Isn't that's that right. <laughs> That's what we could say about love in general. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thanks, Lori, and thanks, Ty. My pleasure. Thank you. Ty Tashiro is the author of The Science of Happily Ever After, What Really Matters in the Quest for Enduring Love. And Lori Gottlieb is an L.A.-based psychotherapist and author of Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. I'm Lori Leibovich. I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email me at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. Our producer is Tim Einenkel. Thanks so much again for joining us on The Labor of Love. 